One of my favorite subjects is my, my daughter, Molly. And I know I've repeated it many times here, but often when I look around the room, I'm uh, it somehow seeing each individual person here, uh, I'm, I think often of the transmission of my daughter, Molly, and I'll try to explain a little bit. Molly is a 11 and a half, and that half is a very big deal. <laughs> But what's, um, what struck me about Molly, it's not anything Molly uh, says or does, but it was, uh, it, it, I was struck at when she was age four at watching her emerge, knowing that she had come into being through no fault of her own. She had been, she had been born, she was thrown into these circumstances, she was the product of, of everything and everyone that went before her, her ancestry, her, and was being formed as each of us is by the, by the winds and the sea of circumstances and conditions. A conditioned, you could call it her, a conditioned being. And one that we call a human being. Very uniquely individual, as each person here is, otherwise known what we would normally call a self. Uh, some felt experience that each of us has of agency, of being somebody. Does that resonate with you? And that sense of, that unique sense of being somebody, that, that felt experience of agency, or however you experience it, it's often based on our our uh, cultural heritage, our ethnic heritage, our, you know, our race, gender, orientation, so many different things that get culled together to give us each a unique feel of ourself. And, you know, as I look around this room, it is, it is, uh, it is a, um, it's a kaleidoscope, it's a, it's, we are, um, we are um, a melting pot of unique individual differences. And then you hear these teachings, and I'll get back to Molly in a minute, but you hear the teachings, and the teachings are often mistranslated as um, that every being is marked by no self. But of course, the Buddha never said that everything is marked by no self. And I'll give you a little background to that too. You know, the Buddha was born at a time where, where the concept of Atta, of this eternal self or this eternal soul was very prevalent. And the, his, and the belief was if you could do enough practice, enough ascetic practice, that, you could, that your Atta would be released, your, your eternal self, your eternal soul would be released released and you would be liberated and then live in uh, eternity's, uh, eternity's freedom, the bliss of, of merging the Brahman as Atman. And the Buddha, growing up in this time of Atta, uh, his teaching 
And his own realization was about refuting that popularly held concept of there being an eternal soul. He saw it within his own understanding that if one clung to any kind of sense of soul or self, that that would be a recipe for, uh, for distress, for suffering, when, uh, when life turns out to be a, a very ongoing, changing condition, to cling to anything turned out to be, would be a source of suffering. So his whole teaching was to refute this idea of there being this, inter- this eternal, um, solid, continuous sense of self. But he never said there is no self. He used the concept anatta, not self. That every individual, including my daughter Molly and every single person here, our life is marked by not self. It's made up not self being, if you examined this unique individuality, even this sense of agency, you could not find where it where it is completely separate from everything that, uh, that caused it to be. That if you were to put this whole mind and body process under a microscope, you wouldn't find anything that existed eternally, um, permanently, solidly. You would only find the, the connection of all the conditions that are arising and changing, that everything is connected to everything else. <laughs> And just to, you know, adopt a view about this isn't enough. It's to actually, uh, you could say, penetrate or realize that that deep sense of of interconnection, to see through the illusion of our separateness. But not to say, I don't exist. There's no self. Clearly, each of us is here as a unique individual. And, And part of our practice, in fact, is to... I was thinking during the sitting tonight of this line from a teacher named Padmasambhava where he said, my mind is vast, is as vast as the sky, but my care for the effects of actions, of my actions, are as refined as barley flour. So he was equally experienced, he equally understood the experience of being completely one with everything not limited to anything, because non-separate, free, open, beyond any description. And yet he also recognized himself as an individual who acts with his body, with his speech, and his, his mind, and those actions produce results. They affect everything and everyone. So I was thinking today that, yes, each of us can experience that our mind is as vast and you could say selfless as the sky, open as the sky. But we are also, and our practice is to realize that. Some say that the, the purpose of practice is to awaken in us that sky-like nature of our mind and to re- reconnect us with that which we are in the deepest, the deepest nature of our being. This un, unmoving, uh, pure, Awareness that underlies the whole of life and death. That's, that's the vastness. But also the purpose of practice is to have us each be able to realize 
are and come into harmony with, be kind to, be merciful with, that the very nature of our individuality and each other's individuality. And so we all have a sense of self, and that the sense of self can be either that loose sense of, of agency, that sense of I'm here and you're there, but there's also, and that's pretty, th- you know, that, that doesn't have to be problematic at all. That's actually really useful. If you don't have that, it's really hard to deal with things. If you don't have a sense of, of, of an inner sense of agency and stability, that it's hard to deal with all the craziness of our life. Any of you have any issues with that? Having a sense of your ground, a sense of a, a being at home in this, in this world? You have to have that. But then we have more, um, you could call it distorted feelings of self. Or some would call it more thick feelings of self. Self-consciousness. The anxiety, fear, the comparing mind, the judging mind, the, the sense of unworthiness, some of our core beliefs about ourselves. These are the more thick sense of self. And then there are the more invisible sense of self, often the ones that we don't even actually see, that are our prejudices, our biases. During the sitting, I was thinking about a. I for many years I worked with a, a woman uh, who was of Indian ancestry who had a particular sensitivity, appropriately to the to issues of diversity, and and the issues of of the shroud of white privilege and and was very much that was her radar was very keen on that and her identity was very keen as being somebody who was quite sensitive to to her place and so she was quite conscious of that and quite conscious increasingly more conscious of her hidden sense of identity and we had an interesting interaction once where after many years of working together, she found out that I was uh, that I had Jewish ancestry. So my ancestry is Jewish, and the moment I told her that my ancestry was Jewish, she described to me very, very. Um, I thought it was very interesting. She described to me that I went from an elevated place in her mind to a less elevated place in her mind. I went down a few pegs. But then after a few moments of going down in her mind a few pegs, then I, she felt safe with me because she knew that I was, that the Jewish, having Jewish ancestry, I may be, have more sensitivity to beings, people who have been oppressed in some way. The, the oppressed part of me. So we carry these hidden identities that, that are not so easy to see. And it comes across as our either uh, our you know shroud of, of of privilege or class or all kinds of things that we we tend to be oblivious to and that don't show up so much when we're just melting into the ocean of existence when we're opening to the sky-like nature of the mind, but they are equally important for us to realize because these are the domains of our life these more thick or more hidden senses of ourselves that 
tend to create division, tend to create that sense that we're living apart from the flow of life, that tend to then reinforce that sense of othering and then judging and then projecting our dis-ease onto, you know, onto everyone else. So the, uh, it, it is an equal part of our practice of awakening, you could say. It's an equal part of our practice to, uh, to get to know ourselves, not just in that deepest sense of the word, but also in the psychological, the social, the class, the gender, every all the different domains that we build that we build the house of self. And this is a little bit of a continuation from last week, loving the house that ego built. So I think it's it, I think it's important for us to acknowledge. Uh, it's very easy for there to be a kind of washing over of our of our unique differences, our unique individuality. And that's where my daughter Molly comes in. Because she showed me how it is that, that we, how human beings in general move from, from that natural, completely um, unique, individual, felt experience that, that it, just the perfect expression of life that each of us is, that, that you are as you're sitting here, before you can think, just completely yourself. It's always important to taste that in the, in the, the Dharma and to see that whatever, however you think about yourself or the, the self that you imagine yourself to be is, is in some way secondhand. It may describe all of those many different facets that I just spoke of earlier, your, your heritage, but yet the story of yourself is, is just one more limited version of yourself. And the, the self that sits here, the unique individuality, it's not so easy to put that in words. It can be experienced, it can be felt, but it's not so easy to put into words. So I noticed Molly, at four years old, being this perfect expression of life. And I see each person in this room has your version of Molly, or I call it Molliness. And I saw Molly just completely, naturally expressing her Molliness until she went to nursery school and then to kindergarten. And in nursery school, she noticed, oh, I have curly hair. They have straight blonde hair. And she wanted to straighten her hair. She wanted to have she wanted to have straight blonde hair. And she then she wanted to look like the other kids, dress like the other kids. And now she had done, now she's recovered to a certain degree her own thing and is uh, proud of it in an appropriate way where she's in her own group. But I can see that this was the beginning of her psychological self that is often referenced to others, to other people. And I can see the building blocks of the, of the, I call it the imagined self, the story of herself, the one 
the one that is comparable to someone else, the one that is measurable, judgeable, that could be determined to be worthy or unworthy. All these are part of a kind of um, psychological universe that is often mistaken for this essential presence, this natural being that each of us is. So the Buddha didn't say that your natural being isn't here. That it's so obvious that we are here in living color. But he did want us to each discover not only are we unique and individual, that we each individually have to resolve our own suffering. We have to resolve our own issues. That no one can do that for you. So that's a very individual thing. But he also wanted you to understand that this self that you imagine yourself to be, this self that you think really exists completely independently is also not true. That you were, have never been that wave, that one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. You have never really been anything but deeply interwoven with the fabric of life. And you are continually being impinged upon and impinging upon the whole of this, the whole of the world, and that you don't exist alone. And any sense of isolation, any sense of, and I don't mean, when I sense, say isolation, I don't mean any sense of yourself. You can have a sense of yourself completely and still feel very connected. But any sense of isolation is a, is a quirk of your psychological consciousness that is a distortion in understanding. That, in fact, you are individual, but you are not disconnected from the whole. Hope you feel better. So we start with a sense of just being in touch with our molliness, and then we build a house of identity. Our mind just naturally does with its reactions, its perceptions. You know, we see something, we hear something, we smell something, we feel something, we have a reaction to it, we like it, we don't like it, and pretty soon we're, our mind is, is just building a, a whole sea of reactions and then we're we're a little bit we have a little bit disease a little bit of disease and we all want to when we feel a little diseased we all want to feel happy and then what what happens when we all want to be happy then we, our mind starts saying how can i be happy and then we start looking around and say oh that person looks happy and that person looks less happy and then, then we're comparing and then we're saying you were struggling, how am I going to become happy? What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? What do I need to buy? What do I need to become? And all of that reactivity, all that searching, obscures that our own version of molliness. 
that can only ever be discovered in the simple living present. And this is why we practice, both to come back to ourselves, that naturalness, but also to recognize that that naturalness, if we sink into it very deeply, we will understand that it that it uh, it's not really so personal. It's not. It doesn't exist completely independently. We can think about it a lot. Its body is made up of the elements of nature: earth, air, fire, water. Our psychological our stories and our patterns made up of non-personal elements. Our moods even, our personalities also. Very individual, but not really personal in that they're, they're, they are forged by, by conditions. And as conditions, those conditions are changeable. They end. And so we, so even though we're somebody, somewhere in the span of our practice, we, we come to a, to, we stop clinging to it. We stop holding so tightly to our sense of being somebody. We are somebody, but connected with everything. More relaxed about it. So notice what happens when you just let yourself be yourself. And when I say that, I don't mean the idea of yourself. I mean just that felt sense of, of yourself, just the sense of agency, just the sense of the body connecting with the cushion or the chair, the sense of the, the sound, the sound and your ear connecting, the smell in your nose, the taste in your tongue, whatever it is that you're experiencing. It goes beyond the story of yourself. It's just the, the, you're just simple, essential being. Notice that at the heart of that simple, essential being is, is awareness. It's primary. That's why I said during the sitting tonight, just be aware. I don't mean be an aware person. That's the story. Just be aware. And the great news is that you don't have to be a person when you're sitting or when you're being mindful. You just have to be aware. So that's why I say stop being a meditator, just be mindful. Stop meditating, just be mindful. So the more simple, the more we just settle back into just the natural, I call it the natural happiness of being conscious. You see that we don't really need to carry around. We can all honor our personal stories, feel the, feel the intimacy that comes from knowing. You know, I, I, I think it would be a very cool thing to hear each person's story here, where you came from. What created your unique individuality? What you suffered with? That would be wonderful. 
And that would be, it would be, it would be paradoxically that which melts away the sense of, of, of our isolation. It would melt away the sense of self. At the same time, in the melting away of that sense of self, we'd also, what would also melt away in the immediacy of our being together is our own personal story. It's both. Our individuality and our, the suchness, the, just the isness of our being together. I don't even know how to use words for that. And yet we know that we couldn't experience this together unless each of us individually was experiencing that. So there's all these paradoxes in our practice. Our mind as wide as the sky, and yet our felt sense of individuality is as intimate and individual as, as a breath, as a sound, as a step. The extremes to which our psychological self can stray away from this essential molliness. Can you relate to this molliness thing that I'm talking about? I wonder. The the extent to which we can stray from it is encapsulated in this very funny thing that I read 50 times here on Tuesday nights, but I, I can never get enough of it. This is, maybe, I probably just did this recently. Did, did anybody remember me reading about the British music group called The Planets? The British musical group called The Planets introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album. And representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote four hours and 33 minutes, which included 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group (laughs) for ripping Cage off, but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered, said Mike Batt of the Planets. Mine is a much better silent piece. (laughs) I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. (laughs) Now this is the comparing mind. And and it's very far away from, from our essential nature. But yet that's often where we live. In the world of comparisons, of judgments, of measuring good and better and best, and then this striving to be different, as though your unique expression of life, the miraculousness of you just being here, isn't enough. So our practice helps us to to reclaim, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, to reclaim our heritage. He says, you... And maybe you understand this differently as you hear it now. You who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being that destitute child. 
Come home. Reclaim your heritage. What does he mean by that? Realize your deepest nature. Realize your individual nature, too. And cultivate. As an individual, cultivate those qualities, those conditions that lead to more happiness, and abandon the ones that lead to more misery. Let your individuality be an, uh, an ornament to existence instead of continuing to feel as though you, you are a problem to be solved or that you have to meet some kind of impossible ideal of, of your Atman releasing from your you know, some kind of some kind of absolute freedom, just moment to moment. As I've been saying recently, a little bit at a time. See, see how you can experience more relief now. There's no other time. More sense of yourself now. Don't postpone this for one instant. Don't take this teaching to go home and become the, the master of being yourself. Just be yourself. Which is another way of saying, be aware and act wisely, lovingly, non-harming, moment by moment. Don't turn it into a, a new ego trip. This is a non... I don't know who, who said this, but the person said, I have come to recognize that there is one recurring human problem and one core solution. The core problem underlying all the seeming complexity of our lives is that we have become dislocated from our own essence and thus move through life feeling separate, contracted, afraid. This self-forgetting is the core cause of all dissatisfaction, unhappiness, and conflict within ourselves, within our relationships, and ultimately upon the world stage. It need not be. Deeper than our thoughts, our emotions, our struggles, the roles that we play in life, is a ground of being that is peace, love, and freedom itself. Without the need for any particular religious belief, we can learn to ground ourselves in this, discovering a deeper and truer identity. Through this, we access a whole new potential for living that gives us back to ourselves. Or as Derek Walcott said, gives us back to ourselves, to the one who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. So, that's all settle into ourselves. <coughs> and as Franz Kafka once wrote, you need not do anything. Just sit at your table and wait. You need not even wait. Just listen. You need not even listen. Just be still, quiet, 
and solitary. And the world will freely offer itself to you to be revealed. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. May all beings realize their differences. May all, reali- all beings realize their sameness. May all beings be free to be. May all beings be happy, peaceful, safe. May all beings live with ease. May our practice tonight and every night be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings, including ourselves. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Stray Thoughts. Thanks for supporting each other's practices, practice, and thanks for your generosity, and hope to see you next Tuesday, and have a good week. Be yourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.